podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Tuesday, the 21st of February. It is a Champions League night, and we have two really, really good games tonight. But first, let's do winners and losers from the weekend's Premier League action. And the first winner, without question, has got to be Arsenal. Arsenal overcame two deficits against Aston Villa to come back and win 4-2 after the poor run of form losing to Everton drawing with Brentford and losing to Manchester City Arsenal couldn't afford more drop points 
At one point, it looked like they would finish the game still behind Manchester City and with their game in hand wiped out. But they managed to fight back with a lot of help from Aston Villa themselves and go on to win the game. Obviously, a big factor in this is the fact that Manchester City drew with Nottingham Forest. That helps Arsenal hugely. Now they're still two points clear and they have that game in hand, so potentially a five-point advantage for the Gunners. I still think City are going to win the league. 14, 15 games left. I would still bet my money on Manchester City. My next big winner is going to be Liverpool going to St. James's Park Playing poorly and still coming away with a 2-0 win is massive. Newcastle had only conceded more than one goal in two other games prior to this one. So that makes three for the season, two of them against Liverpool. Newcastle had only lost once all season and they hadn't lost at home. Liverpool have now beaten them twice this season. Nobody else has achieved a positive result against them. A lot of teams have gotten draws, but nobody else has beaten them. They've conceded 15 goals all season. Liverpool account for four of them. Man City for three. And the rest of the league combined in 20 games have scored eight goals against that Newcastle defence. So no matter what, I think Liverpool have to go down as a winner, especially considering the sources of the goals. Darwin Nunes, source of much criticism or focus of much criticism this year, much of it unfairly. Scoring a great first. And Cody Gakbo, who people were already starting to get down on, despite the fact he's barely played. Uh, scoring the second. Salah getting an assist. Liverpool looking more dangerous in attack. Midfield is still a major issue. But three points is three points. And it does help Liverpool hugely. And my last big winner is going to be Southampton. I would give a, a nod of the cap to both Everton and Bournemouth here who also picked up huge wins this weekend. But because both of them won, they don't open up enough ground on the bottom three. They don't separate themselves. Now, Everton are 16. You could actually, do you know what? We'll put Everton, Bournemouth and Southampton as one. Those three down the bottom, all winning. What they do is they close the gap on the group above. So Crystal Palace... Nottingham Forest, Leicester and Wolves. They both, in terms of Everton and Bournemouth, jump over West Ham and Leeds and knock them into the bottom three. And in Southampton's case, they make sure teams aren't getting separation on them. With one win, Southampton will move themselves out of the bottom three if results go in their favour. And that's the kind of position you want to be in where a win can take you out of the bottom three, not just off the bottom, but out of the bottom three. So I think all three of them, to be fair, deserve to be considered as big winners from the weekend. In terms of losers, I would put Leeds and West Ham into the same bucket. Both big losers this weekend as they both drop into the bottom three. Leeds, it looks like they're going to appoint a new manager. We'll come to that. West Ham, I think there's going to be increased pressure on David Moyes if results don't pick up. They've got Nottingham Forest at home. Then they go to Manchester United in the Cup. But then it's Brighton away, Villa at home, 
City away, a huge game at home to Southampton, Fulham away, Arsenal at home, a huge game away to Bournemouth, Liverpool home. That's a really, really tough eight-game Premier League run after this one. And there's been some reports that if West Ham failed to beat Nottingham Forest, that Moyes will be out. I don't know what keeping him does for you if the plan is, well, if he wins that game, we keep him. Well, what if he loses the next one and the one after that? Then you've just lost three weeks that a new manager could have to get things turned around. So at this point in the season, it I really believe it needs to be you either sack them or you back them till the end of the season. Moyes either needs to know he's safe till the end of the season, which should give him a confidence boost himself, or you need to get somebody else in. And West Ham would be an appealing job. There's a lot of good players there. It's a big club. It's London. I do think there'd be a lot of managers that would eye that job up. Um, I, I think it's the type of job that could maybe attract a surprising candidate, someone like a Thomas Tuchel. I think it's that caliber of job. With the players that are there, there will be money to spend because Kredinsky is willing to spend money. Look what they did in the summer. And Tuchel wants to stay in, in England. He wants to stay in London. And that might be the best option he'll get because he won't get the Arsenal job because Arteta's not going anywhere. If Chelsea do move on from Potter, they're not going to go back to Tuchel. I don't think he'll get the Spurs job because I think if Conte leaves, I think Pochettino takes that. So I think it's most likely the best job he could get with Villa off the board, with Newcastle off the board, Everton off the board, Liverpool aren't changing manager, City aren't changing manager, United aren't changing manager. I do think West Ham might be the best possible job for Tuchel in the short term. I do think he'd keep them up. I would throw a lot of money at him for that job if I was running West Ham. Like I say, West Ham and Leeds, two of the big losers this weekend. West Ham have a really tough run of games coming up. As do Leeds, huge game on Saturday. They're home to Southampton. That's the definition of a six-pointer. Then they go away to Chelsea, Brighton home, Wolves away. That's a big one down at the bottom of the table. Arsenal away, Palace home, Liverpool home, Fulham away. Like These are really tough games, especially for a team shorn of confidence. Next loser's got to be Chelsea, losing at home to the bottom club. But the run of form that Chelsea are in, it, it just... It doesn't breed confidence. You don't look at Chelsea and see a side that can win the next game. And their next game is Tottenham away. So that's going to be difficult. Now, they have a favourable run coming after that. You would think it's a favourable run. Leicester, Everton, Villa, Wolves. They're all games they should win. Does anyone fancy them to win those games? I don't. Does anyone fancy them to score more than one goal a game? I don't. Played 23, scored 23. 
you think of the attacking talent at Chelsea. I know they don't have, other than Aubameyang and Datro Fafana, who's a kid, they don't have that out-and-out nine, that, that real goal scorer. And Aubameyang is clearly well past his best at this point. Datro Fafana is not ready for the Premier League at this point. But Mount can get you goals. Havertz can get you goals. Sterling can get you goals. Joe Felix can get you goals. Like There is goals in that squad. And for whatever reason, Graham Potter has not figured any of this out yet. I saw Raj asking yesterday about Pochettino's first year at Spurs, where they kind of felt like they were drifting through the season as well. But the difference was, with that season at Spurs, a couple of things became really clear. Ericsson and Kane had really good chemistry. Now, at that point, that was Harry Kane's first real season as a starter. We didn't know yet what he was going to be, but he had that amazing season. And then, obviously, there was a lot of questions. Would he be a one-season wonder and whatever else? Obviously, he's proven to be anything but. Um, But him and Ericsson had really good chemistry. There was a definitive style of play being put in place. It was very clear what the manager wanted. It was also clear that they needed a bunch of new players in defence, midfield and attack right through the spine of the team. They brought in Delhi in the January, but over the course of that season from the summer and the January window, they still made a net profit of 10 million on transfers. Didn't spend a whole lot of money. They added Toby Alderweireld and Youngman's son the summer after that first season two signings that made a lot of sense. They brought in Kieran Trippier and a big part of um, the plan that Pochettino had was having four fullbacks that he could rotate. So he'd always have them fresh. And once they got Sun and once Delhi came in and that front four clicked and Alderweireld and Vertonghen were at centre-back and they'd Walker and Rose they had Dembele in midfield. It really did start to take shape. Then obviously Wanyama arrives the next summer and he's sort of the final piece into that puzzle. And that team should have gone on to win a league title. But from, from early with Pochettino, you could see what he wanted to do. They just didn't have the players capable. You can't really see what Chelsea want to do. We know that Graham Potter has a definitive style of play. We know that Graham Potter has fundamental principles in his makeup, in how he sets his team up and what he asks them to do. The issue is we're not seeing any of them at Chelsea. He hasn't implemented any of that, and he's been there a while now. Like He took over in September. We're now in February. So he should, at this point, have gotten more of a handle on what he wants and what players fit where but you watch Chelsea week to week and things just randomly seem to change and be different for no reason now he was a little bit like this at Brighton where things would change not every week but every couple of weeks there'd be quite a drastic tweak within the system but at Chelsea it is week to week it's half to half sometimes 
I do wonder if maybe he's just a bit overwhelmed by the size of the club and the job. I didn't think he was ready at the time. I thought he needed an in-between move. I think if he'd held on, he would have got the Villa job, which would have been a perfect fit. And if he'd done well at Villa, where he would have been backed, I think then you put yourself in a position for the Tottenham job or, you know, in time, the Arsenal job or the Chelsea job or whatever. But Chelsea's a very chaotic club. And I think if you'd witnessed that summer, I I just, if you witnessed Bowley during that summer, I don't know how you could look at it and think that's the ideal situation to walk into now. I really don't. So I think he made a mistake going there. I think he should have held on at Brighton. Waited for an in-between type of move, like an Aston Villa. I think the jump was too big. Like, if it, there's a difference between joining even a Spurs and joining a Chelsea. At Spurs, you're going to get time, you're going to get patience. I think you'll get more buy-in from the players as well. At Chelsea, there's a, a bad culture. And there has been for a long time. And even though the, the characters have changed, the toxicity in the dressing room still seems to be there. And that's something that multiple managers have spoken about, VS Boas most notably, about the cult, the, the toxic culture he walked into where the players had far too much power because the players had far too close a relationship with Roman because Roman wanted to be their mate and they used to holiday on his yacht. So when Vias Boas walked in, despite Roman telling him, get rid of Terry, get rid of Lampard, get rid of Drogba, rebuild this thing. Those players hadn't been given the memo. And I think that type of culture, they those players forced him out because they went to Roman and Roman sided with them over the manager, despite the fact that he was the one that told the manager, go and change this. Despite the fact that the Vias Boas fiasco cost him nearly 50 million quid in terms of the buyout and paying off his contract, he didn't care. He'd rather have had the relationship with the players when push came to shove, that was more important to him. And that kind of culture is ingrained in Chelsea. And I know they're working to change it, but you can see it with some of their players that there's a level of entitlement there. Because they've grown up with the best of the best being provided for them. There's a level of entitlement with the fan base as well, because they've, a lot of them have grown up with the success that Roman brought. And because Bowley has come in and just splurged 640 million on players and, and manager, plus the 60 million that's guaranteed to go out the door for Nkunku, it, you've just got a situation where they, they all demand everything yesterday. And Graham Potter has come from a club at Brighton where everything was a measured approach and you had the ideal support system for a manager. I mean, Deserby walked in to Brighton and Brighton just wrapped their arms around him. He had a poor start. 
They let him work his way through it. And now they're reaping the rewards. Potter went to Chelsea. They had a good start. Expectation went through the roof. And then when things leveled off and they started to be poor, he needs to go. It's such a strange club. My last loser of the weekend then is is Newcastle. Now, it's not just a defeat to Liverpool. It's the fact that Nick Pope got sent off. And Nick Pope is now likely to, well, not likely, Nick Pope will now miss the League Cup final, which is a huge moment for Newcastle Football Club. You're talking almost 70 years without major silverware. And he's out. And Dubravka can't play because he's cup-tied, which is a nonsense rule, by the way. Especially because he was on loan. If he'd been at a club in the first half of the season and Newcastle had bought him, I could understand him being cup-tied. But if you're out on loan from your parent club and you play, that shouldn't count as a cup. That that shouldn't count as being cup-tied. So Newcastle have got to be considered one of the losers that we get. Like you also got a couple of little niggles that a couple of players picked up, including Jolington. You'd hope they'll be able to put out as strong a team as possible, but losing Nick Pope, who's been absolutely outstanding this season, is a huge, huge blow. We'll move on to the news that Leeds are set to appoint Javi Gracia as their manager until the end of the season. Uh, They have kicked the tyres on a number of different options. They tried to get Arnie Slot. He ruled himself out. He wants to stay at Feyenoord and try and win the Eredivisie. They spoke to Carlos Corberon. He decided to stay at West Brom. Spoke to Alfred Schroeder. I think the fans played a part in pushing that one back. The one they really wanted was Andoni Iraola from Rio Vallecano, but Rio were not prepared to let him go mid-season. So they have landed with Javi Gracia. Now, the following are the words of, and I quote, Spanish football expert, Guillaume Balaga. He is a manager that doesn't just have one style. He adapts to the types of players he has. This is why he will work very well for Leeds or Watford. Because if they have bec- have to become more defensive, he will be able to adjust that. If they need more goals, he will also be able to do it in training. I have been to see him in a few uh, see see him a few times in old jobs, and he develops a very close relationship with players. He was a player himself at the top level, and he knows what is required. He is quiet when he has to be. He raises his voice when he has to. He convinces players by working with them, not imposing his personality. He is a great reader of games. Guillaume Balaga, shilling for a Spanish manager, unsurprisingly. In Javi Gracia's career as a manager, it began with Pontevedra. He won the Segunda Division B, which is the third division in Spain in his one season there. Now, I will say this. He only took over in March. 
He he managed from March of 07 to June of 08. He took over late in that 06, 07 season and they went on and won the league. He left in June of 20 of 2008 um, and went to Cadiz, who were also in the third division. He managed to win the title there, but was sacked in the January of 2010. Had six months out of football. The only job he could get was Villarreal's B team. Uh, he spent a year there winning 36.8% of his games. Then he moved on and joined Olympiacos Volos, not to be confused with Olympiacos. Uh, he managed four games and left. Then he moved to Kerkyra, also in Greece, 21 games, seven wins, four defeats. Four, sorry, seven wins, four draws, 10 defeats. Uh, sacked in March. Goes to Almeria and does really well. Does really well with Almeria. Wins 56% of his games, uses that to get a springboard to Osasuna. Does a really poor job there, wins only 25.6% of his games. Then he goes to Malaga, stays there two years, wins 33.3% of the games. Leaves Malaga to take up the job at Ruben Kazan. Stays there one season, doesn't do particularly well, winning 38.2% of his games. Then he's out of football for six months and he turns up at Watford. He stays at Watford from January 2018 to September 2019. 66 games in charge, 25 wins, 13 draws, 28 defeats. That's not not terrible for Watford. Then he's out of football for nearly a year, having been sacked, and ends up at Valencia. From my memory, he did okay in the first six months at Watford. Then he had a pretty good season, then a really bad start to the 1920 season and got sacked. Uh, He ends up at Valencia in July 2020, and it's a disaster. Uh, Wins only 11 of 38 games. He spent another six months out of the game and ended up at Al Sad, where he replaced Xavi, who took the Barcelona job. Was it the Barcelona job? I think that's who he replaced there. Yes, yes, he replaced Xavi. Um, He won the league. He won the league. The title was almost over, but he won the league anyway. Um, won 72.7% of his game, so a fairly good effort, though I, I'm pretty sure I could go there and win 70% of my games, uh, considering the financial advantage that they have over most of the rest. He left after six months in charge, despite having signed a two-and-a-half-year contract. And now he is about to become the new manager of Leeds. I wouldn't be a huge fan. I don't really enjoy the way his teams play. His best achievement when he was at Watford was getting to the final of the FA Cup. Um, He was the manager who replaced Marco Silva. You'll remember that that season, Marco Silva had started very, very well. Then he had been approached by Everton and his head was turned after. It was like a short he, two months maybe he he'd done well for two months. Everton approached him, and I think it rattled his head a bit. 
and things went very quickly downhill. He ended up getting sacked and then he went to Everton in the end anyway. Um, let's see. They won the first four. Was it? It wasn't just four games in charge. They won the first four, lost one, drew one, lost two, won two more. So they won six and drew one of the first 10 games. I'm, I'm fairly certain that's when Everton got themselves in the mix for him, which was late October. When did Everton sack their manager that season? I don't know why this is relevant. It's actually not relevant, but I like to go down little wormholes. Uh, Everton. 1819. No. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong season. It was the 1718 season I need to be looking at. Yes. So, yeah, they started really well. In the first eight games, they won four, drew three, and lost only one. Everton sacked Ronald Koeman on the 23rd of October. And those eight games brought us through the 14th of October. So then they lose to Chelsea, which is fine. That's where the approach comes. And from there, they win only three more games and draw only one more game under Silva, losing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Losing ten. So, yeah, the the Everton approach uh, screwed him. So, Gracia takes over. At that point, they're comfortable enough in mid-table. Like, they never dropped too far despite the horrendous run of form. Um, they actually have a really bad end to the season as well under Gracia. So, he didn't do well that season. The next season, they finish 11th, which is, is really good for Watford. And they get to the cup final, and City spanked them 6-0. But yeah, he finished comfortably in mid-table with them, achieved 50 points across the season. Um, If I'm not mistaken, that was the year that they sold Richard... Yeah, they sold Richarlison to Everton for 40 million quid. That fella's moved for 100 million quid across his last two transfers. A hundred million quid for Richarlison. Like Watford paid 11. He scored five league goals that season and Everton paid 40 rising to 50. Now, I don't think any of the add-ons actually kicked in, but Marco Silva wanted to bring him there. Goes to Everton, 13, 13, 7, 10, and then Spurs pay 60 million for him. Do you know what's funny? We hear a lot about, you know, this person's done a really good job building a team there. You know, you get directors of football getting a lot of praise. Arsenal were desperate to sign him. Desperate to sign him. He was their target before Gabriel Jesus. 60 million for Richarlison. Anyway, Gracia does well in his first full season. Finishes 11th. FA Cup final gets walloped. Uh, start of the next season, they lose their first three, draw their fourth, and he's just sacked. He's just sacked at that point. I assume they'd also, oh, they'd won, they'd won in the League Cup. So, defeat by Brighton, defeat by Everton, defeat by West Ham, draw away to Newcastle, and sacked. 
very, very, very Watford-esque. Then Watford ended up getting relegated that season in a surprise to absolutely nobody, considering they had Gracia until the 7th of September. Kike Sanchez-Flores took over the next day, and he was manager until the middle of, sorry, the start of December. Then he got sacked. Nigel Pearson took over. He was there for until the middle of July. Remember, this is the COVID year where the pandemic stopped the games. Uh, he got sacked with two games left. They sacked three different managers that season and finished the season with Hayden Mullins in charge. What a bizarre club Watford is. So you can't really judge him on Watford, but he did really well in that season. He did really well with Almeria. I would suggest he did fairly well with Malaga, even though he only won 33%. I would say that's still a pretty good effort considering what was going on at Malaga at the time with all the, the, the financial issues. But there's no doubt he failed at Valencia, he failed at Ruben Kazan. I just, I don't know. For me, I, I, I've i never been impressed. I don't like the way his teams play. Um, he did win Premier League Manager of the Month for August 2018, so you know credit to him for that. And he got Watford to a cup final, albeit they got absolutely demolished by City. Um, unnecessarily so. City were 4-0 up with 10 minutes to go. There was, there was no need to go and run the score up. Could have just played a bit of keep ball. Um, yeah, so it looks like Javi Gracia is going to be the Leeds manager until the end of the season. I assume it's because they want to get who they want in the summer and they don't want to just settle now. And there's, there is some merit to that line of thinking. But if they go down, this looks like a disastrous move. Would you not nearly have been better off maybe just maybe going for Sam? As horrible as it is to suggest, maybe that would have been the move there. But do you have the players to play his style of football? Probably not. And Sam, as we know, loves to spend a bit of money in January. Uh, other manager moves QPR have made their approach to Wickham for Garrett Ainsworth. Compensation has been agreed between the two clubs and is now up to Garrett Ainsworth to decide whether or not he wants to leave Wickham. Now, there's no question that it is a significant step up for him to join QPR. They're a bigger club and it is a league up. 11 years he's been there, though. So that's going to be big upheaval for Wickham, who are a brilliant little club. Um, first, I think, came to everybody's attention under Martin O'Neill. He brought them into the Football League. They'd been a non-league team for years and years and years. And O'Neill did a, an incredibly good job there. Brought them from non-league into what was then the third division and then uh, into the second division. Did a sensational job. He left, went to Norwich, didn't stay long at Norwich, went to Leicester and uh, the rest was history. But Wickham, to their credit, they have stayed in the football league. They've risen as high as the championship, which is an incredible achievement considering they are a very, very small club. There's a lovely little stadium there, Adams Park. Well worth your while if you can get a get an opportunity to go to Adams Park and little compact ten thousand seater stadium. 
Um, yeah, I just always, always been impressed by Wickham. The way they run their club, just very, very clever. Some decent players there. Now, Sam Vokes, people will remember him, former Premier League player. Played for, for Burnley for a long, long time. Was at Stoke for a few years. Bounced around, haven't been, he was at Wolves for a long time, but barely played for them. But everybody will know him from Stoke, from, from Burnley. Yeah, he's been at Wickham now for a while. Ainsworth has done a great job, and to stay in any job 11 years is impressive. But at a lower league club, I think it's more impressive because clubs there are just, they can be so cutthroat because, you know, relegation is potentially disastrous because they're all been run on hopes and dreams. They're all hemorrhaging money, but, you know, Wick- Wickham have, have managed to sustain and and he's been a big part of that. Um, it's definitely a big step up for him to go to QPR. 550 games in charge of Wickham. He's won nearly 40% of them. Only 194 defeats in 550 games. That's pretty impressive. Uh, before getting that job, his only experience as a manager was two caretaker spells with QPR. And obviously he did he did play for QPR from 2003 through to 2010. Also played for Wickham then afterwards, which is where the, the relationship came. And he actually came out of retirement there a few years ago to play for Woodley United, play a few games for them, um, while also serving as manager of Wickham, which was quite fun. Um, yeah, I, 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 I think it's a good move. Plays a really fun style of football. High press. Creative, inventive, progressive. I, I think that's I think that's going to be a, a decent fit for QPR. He he play he, he manages the way he plays. He was a very a very good, talented footballer. Now he was wasn't a Premier League caliber player, but for the lower leagues, he was a very talented footballer. And he always just wondered maybe if he was a little bit more, I don't know, straight edged or straight line, you know, maybe a bit more focused, maybe he could have gone a bit higher, but he had one of them fun careers where he bounced around a lot. North of Northwich, Victoria, Preston, North end, Cambridge, Northwich again, Preston again, Lincoln, Port Vale, Wimbledon, Preston again, Walsall, Cardiff, QPR and Wickham played as a pro from 1991 to his last game was the 2013 season, 2012-13. He was player manager at Wickham for a couple of years, you see. Um, That's a fair effort. That is a fair effort. Anyway. Gone off topic. Yeah, Gareth Ainsworth. I, I actually think that's a decent appointment for QPR. We will take a break. When we come back, we will go through the news, go through the gossip, and talk about tonight's Champions League games. So see you in a sec.
Right, welcome back. So, Champions League tonight, Liverpool versus Real Madrid is the glamour tie of the night. Uh, Liverpool came second in their group behind Napoli. After getting walloped by Napoli, they did turn things around and and improve hugely, winning five in a row. Um, Real topped their group ahead of Leipzig, Shakhtar, Donetsk and Celtic. They beat Celtic 3-0 in Celtic Park. A little bit, the scoreline flattered them a little bit. Uh, then they beat Leipzig and Shakhtar at home. Then they drew away to Shakhtar. That game took place in Warsaw. They lost away to Leipzig before hammering Celtic at home, and they did deserve to hammer them on that occasion. They have been a little bit hit, hit and miss this season. They lost the Supercopa final to Barcelona 3-1. They've been beaten in La Liga by Rayo Vallecano, Villarreal, who aren't having a great season, and Mallorca. All three of those are games you would have expected them to win. They also drew at home with Osasuna, Girona, and Real Sociedad. Sociedad, fair enough, but the others are all teams they should be beating. So those are uncharacteristic slip-ups by Real Madrid. Now, When they're on, they're still great and they wiped the floor with Barca in the league game earlier this season. They've got a big run coming up here with Liverpool, Atleti, Real Betis, Liverpool again and Barcelona in the Copa del Rey. They've also got Barca coming up in the league. Um, So it wouldn't be a surprise if they did start to just turn it on and just pour through this and, and beat everybody. But no Cruz, no Chumani. Those are concerns. There's an injury to Benzema. He's going to play, but he's not 100%. Vinicius and Valverde have been outstanding this season. And those two really do carry the hopes of Real at the moment. Rodrigo's having an improved season. He's really started to find his own kind of niche at Real and is looking much more comfortable playing as a second striker. So... Real are shifting shape every so often, and sometimes they stick with their traditional 4-3-3, but sometimes they go with a one-and-one up front and kind of a a four in midfield. It's a a 4-3-3 that flexes into a 4-4-2. It's quite similar to what Man City used to do. Valverde will start on the right of the midfield three, but he'll end up playing right wing. Vinicius will start on the left of the front three, but he'll end up playing left wing. And Rodrigo starts on the right of the front three, but ends up playing just off Benzema similar to how Sterling used to play off Aguero. And it has worked really well for them. Now, I think it would work better with Chuameni and Kamavinga in there just for power in midfield. But obviously, Luka Modric is a ridiculous footballer and he's still going strong. You would expect that tonight it'll be him and Kamavinga and probably Ceballos as a midfield three. Because I think they'll look to be a little bit more conservative tonight. So... Valverde on the right wing, Vinny on the left, and Benzema through the middle, and Rodrigo on the bench. Their biggest issues are at the back. Uh, Rudiger's not very good. Militao's good, but error-prone. Carvial's past his best. Now, Alaba's back playing left-back, and he looks like he's been there all this time. David Alaba, to me, is the best left-back of the last 15 years, and it's not close. I would have him several levels above Marcelo. Uh, as good going forward, not as fancy, doesn't have the flicks, the dribbles, but a better passer. 
um, and more purposeful in what he does and a much, much better defender. Much, much better defender than David Alaba ever was or than, than Marcelo ever was. Um, they've got a great goalkeeper. He's fit. He's in great form. They're going to be very, very tough for Liverpool who are not particularly good at the moment. So we'll wait and see how that one turns out. In the other game then, I think this is a fantastic game. Eintracht Frankfurt, the reigning Europa League champions, taking on Napoli. Eintracht had an uneven group. They got hammered at home by Sporting. Then they beat Marseille away in an upset. Got a draw at home to Spurs, lost away to Spurs. Looked like they were going to go out, but managed to beat Marseille at home and then go and beat Sporting away from home and managed to get themselves into the knockout phase. They've been improved in the league as well. Um, through the first few months, they lost four of their first 12 games with a couple of draws as well. And they were kind of hanging around in mid-table through the first six. And then they surged into really good form. They got as high as second. And then they've kind of had a little bit of a dip again uh, in the last five, two draws and a defeat and only two wins. So they've dropped from second to sixth. But they're still well-placed to uh, potentially get a top four finish. There's some really good players in this team. Uh, Kolo Muani is obviously having a really good season. He's got 15 goals in all competitions. Uh, Rafael Santos Bore, he's having a, a fairly impressive season in terms of his all-round play. Not so much in terms of the goal scoring, only three goals this season. But um, in terms of his all-round play and his link play, he's been quite good. Jesper Lindstrom's having an excellent season. Daichi Kamada's having an excellent season. You've got Gibral Sau in midfield, who's always a handful. Um, Ansgar Nauf is a really exciting young player they've had on loan from Dortmund for the last two years. My assumption is they'll keep him after this season. They've got Evan and Dicker in defence, who a lot of clubs are showing uh, showing interest in. Tuta, the Brazilian, I've been impressed with him the couple of times I've seen him this season as well. And at 23, I think he's someone that will get a move to a, a bigger club. And then obviously they've got the experienced Kevin Trapp in goal. So you've got quality and experience throughout. They've got a really, really good manager. I think Oliver Glasnar is one of the best managers that goes under the radar. He was really good for Lask, did a brilliant job with Wolfsburg, got them into the Champions League at the expense of Eintracht, announced he didn't want to stay for whatever reason, Eintracht snapped him up. And in his first season, he wins the Europa League. Uh, it's a hell of an effort. Um, I think he's a really good manager. I think his teams play good football. And I think this is going to be a good game tonight. But Napoli, for me, right now, are the best team in Europe. They are not just winning Serie A. They are running away with the Serie A title. Uh, they seem to be getting better and better as the week go by. They're 15 points clear with 15 games left. 23 games, 20 wins, two draws, one defeat. Scored 56, conceded only 15. The best attack, the best defense in the league. They've been top since week six. They had been top through the first three weeks. Dropped to fourth, back to second, and then top ever since. Their only defeat was a 1-0 defeat away to Inter who caught them cold coming off the back of the World Cup break. 
Now, they did go out early in the um, Coppa Italia to Cremonese, which was a little bit embarrassing, considering Cremonese are... I, I, I was going to say, how do I put this nicely? There is no way to put it nicely. They're garbage. They haven't won all season. 23 games, nine points taken from nine draws. At the weekend, they were playing Torino. They were 2-1 up with 11 minutes to go, and Torino came back and got a draw. Cremonese might well go the whole season without winning a league game, but somehow they're still in the Coppa Italia, and they've knocked out Napoli and Roma. And Roma, if I'm not mistaken, are in the top four at the moment. Roma are third, so they've beaten the teams that were first and third in the Cup while failing to get a single win in the league. Um, But Napoli are sensational. They've got a very good goalkeeper now, Alex Merritt. Kim Min-Jay is phenomenal. Rachmani is is good. I'm not a huge fan, but he is good. I don't like Mario Rui, the left-back, but they do have other options there in the form of Matthias Oliveri, who I do like. Um, they've got Di Lorenzo, who's playing out of his skin at right back. They've got Ostergaard as a backup centre-back, who's really good. I don't know why Brighton let him go. Midfield is where they really start to shine, though. Lobotka has been unbelievable this season. He's like he's like Mascherano with more passing ability. Um, Zambo has been... Tremendous. Zielinski has been phenomenal. Elmas has played well as a squad player. Endembele's contributed hugely as a squad player. So much strength and depth there with, with Endembele and Elmas not even starting for them. And the three who are starting have been great. And then in attack, it's just great options. Like coming off the bench, they've got Raspadori, who's fantastic. Politano, who's, who's who's good, and Simeone, who's really good. And the starting three normally is Herving Lozano on the right. Chucky's a very, very good player. Osman through the middle, he's in the form of his life. And Kavicha on the left, who's just taking great joy in embarrassing defenders game after game after game. And I think Kavicha and Osman is the best attacking duo anywhere in Europe right now. They're playing really good football. Spalletti, who I'm, I've never been a huge fan of, has just found magic with them this season and looks set to finally win the Serie A title that has evaded him for so long. But they might also win the Champions League. They're playing that well. So I think there's two good games tonight. Obviously, Liverpool-Rail is the glamour tie, but the other one's actually a bit more interesting. Um, so yeah, we'll talk with them tomorrow and then we'll preview tomorrow's games, which are Leipzig City and Inter versus Porto. Uh, Cesar Aspilicueta has been discharged from hospital. He obviously took a boot in the face when Sekou Mara tried an overhead kick and knocked him clean unconscious. Uh, he received oxygen. He was taken off on a stretcher. He'd received or he'd re- recovered consciousness um, by the time he was taken off the pitch, was brought to hospital and has now been 
released after observation. So uh looks like all good with him, thankfully enough. What else do we have here? Title winning manager wants West Ham job. Uh, this is from the boot room football. Rafa Benitez apparently wants the West Ham United job. Um, I I wouldn't employ Rafa at this point. I just I think he's I think football has passed him by. I, I just don't think he's suited to the modern game. But you might say the same thing about Moyes. He's still stuck in his ways quite a bit. Um, if I was getting rid of Moyes, it wouldn't be for Rafa Benitez. Simple as that. Uh, Gary Neville reveals major advantage Manchester United have over Newcastle in the Carabao Cup final. It's nothing he's revealed. He's just pointed out the fact that not having Nick Pope is a big blow. So, you know. Gary Neville doubles down on his suspicion that the Glazers will stay at Manchester United despite welcoming takeover bids after club announced an increase on season ticket prices. Why would they introduce something they won't benefit from, asks Neville. I fully agree. I don't think they're leaving. I think they might sell a stake. I think they might look to sell the stakes owned by the non-Joel and Avram siblings, but I do think they're going to stay. Uh, Danny Alves has been denied bail as he awaits trial for rape. Um, Yeah, good. He shouldn't get bail because he would very much be a flight risk. He would be back in Brazil before anybody could blink, passport or no passport, he'd get back into Brazil and they don't extradite their own citizens. Uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi said he hasn't spoken to anybody at Chelsea in months and that his sole focus is on Bayer Leverkusen. It is a little bit concerning uh, that one of Chelsea's homegrown talents, who's a significantly gifted player, is kind of forgotten about right now. Now, I do I do think Hudson-Odoi needs a permanent move away from Chelsea. He hasn't done great at Leverkusen, but I, I still believe in the talent. I still think he's got an awful lot to offer uh, under the right manager at the right club. Uh, Victor Osman refuses to rule out a departure from Napoli. Uh, it won't be his decision. Dilaronitis, Dilaronitis, I think it's Laurinaitis. Uh, De Laurinaitis, he won't, won't sell if he doesn't want to. He, he should stay. He should stay. They're building, I think they're building something special there. And if they can add another couple of talents like him and Kavicha to that group, the sky is the limit. Like, if you were to look at that ahead of the summer, midfield, I think they're pretty good. They'll have a decision to make on Endembele. I don't know that they need anybody else in attack because I think when you've got those big two, you're kind of looking for the third to be a facilitator and fill in the gaps, and Chucky does that quite well. I'd say you maybe look to upgrade the left-back spot and maybe a centre-back. Other than that, like unless you find another Kavicha somewhere, I think it's just about maintenance. Tottenham could sign Andre Onana as replacement for Hugo Lloris. 
um, Inter's financial struggles mean that they're probably going to have to sell a couple of people this summer. And Onana is one name that has come up as somebody that they could look to move on. I'd be surprised, but stranger things have happened. He's a very good goalkeeper. And if he's going to stay retired from international football, then you're not going to risk losing him for AFCON. So it could be well worth could be well worth your while doing that. Um, Leicester City held back by FFP as Brendan Rodgers makes King Power investment claim. Financial fair play regulations don't work, says Brendan Rodgers. With the rules on the agenda after Manchester City were filed, were charged with more than a hundred breaches. Rogers believes financial fair play only served to hold back teams like Leicester and said the owner would invest more money in the club if he could. I think that's definitely fair to say that that owner would invest more money if he could. And I do think there's need, there needs to be some shifts in the FFP rules to make them fairer across the board, to put stronger limits on the bigger clubs and give a bit more freedom to the the other clubs, you know, the other 14 in the league, uh, 13 now with, with the way Newcastle have gone. So the other 13, like, for example, if you don't make the Champions League and you don't have that type of revenue, you should be allowed to invest more, I think, to make it more of a balanced playing field. So, yeah, I, I'm unusually for Brendan. I think he's on point here. Um, let's do the gossip. Paris Saint-Germain are preparing to reappoint Thomas Tuchel as the club's manager. Christophe Galtier is currently in charge. I'm not, I'm not sure that's true at all. In fact, I would go as far to say, as to say I think that's complete nonsense. Arsenal are leading the race to sign Declan Rice. Um, good. Neymar has no interest in leaving Paris Saint-Germain before his contract ends in 2027. And why would he? With the amount of money they're paying him. Why would he leave? Manchester United are prepared to listen to offers for Scott McTominay and believe they could get 25 million. <laughs> Excuse me. The thing is, they probably would because there's enough stupid clubs out there. They probably would get 25 million for bang average McTominay. Ansu Fati says he wants to stay with Barcelona for many more years. And Barcelona should want to keep him for many more years. United have a deal in principle agreed with Alejandro Garnacho on a five-year contract. That's a good move. He's, he's super talented. United are also confident of signing a new deal with Diogo Delo. He's been really good this year, so absolutely they should be keeping him. David Moyes will be sacked if Nottingham Forest beat West Ham this weekend. What if it's a draw? Like, what if it's a draw? Is one point keeping him in the job? Because then you're just not you're just not acting like a serious club. Uh, Benitez interested in replacing Moyes, uh, Leeds and Javi Gracia. Uh, Barcelona are sorry. Leeds are interested in Barcelona's 18 year old Spanish forward Ilias Akamash. Um, or Elias, it might be Elias Akabash. I would be a little bit surprised. I think he's fairly highly rated at Barcelona. Like, he's already played a couple of games for the first team last season. 
I don't know if he's played at all this season. Um, I haven't been paying enough attention, but he's very, very talented. So I'd be a little bit surprised if that was true. If if, if Barca were willing to let him go. I'm sure Leeds having interest is true. Uh, Joe Lewis and Daniel Levy are unsure as to whether to listen to offers for the whole club, sell a minority stake, or stay in full control of Tottenham. I, I think selling a minority stake would be a, a smart move. The father of Liverpool's 18-year-old Spanish midfielder, Stefan Besetic, says the Reds were not going to sign him from the Salta Vigo Academy until they learned of Manchester United's interest and stepped up their own interest in the player. Um, well, glad we did. Arsenal, Chelsea and Manchester United are all interested in Marcus Turam, who is a free agent at the end of this season. He will get a good move. I think he's. I think Inter Milan is one that makes sense. Chelsea are in talks about sending Brazilian, well, it says Brazilian striker, he is a midfielder, Andre Santos on loan to Palmieri's after the 18-year-old was denied a work permit. Um, Palmieri's would be a great club for him to go to because Abel Ferreira is brilliant and he's really good at developing midfielders. Just look at Danilo. Look how well Danilo has done since coming to the Premier League. Abel Ferreira did that. Uh, that will do me for today then, folks. Thank you, as always, for listening. And I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.